0: Every year, utilities file construction budgets with their state utility commissions. The budgets outline where new infrastructure, like power lines and substations, will be built over the coming year. And these budgets, they're huge. I'm talking like millions of dollars.
1: I saw a junior employee at the commission holding up a piece of paper with a couple of tables on it. And so I, you know, I walked over and, um, you know, I I could see it was filled with dollar signs and the numbers they were, looked really big. There were a lot of zeros.
0: In 2005, Lisa Schwartz was working for the Oregon Public Utility Commission, and it was during this time that she caught her first glimpse at one of these budgets.
1: I asked him, well, what do you do with that piece of paper? What do you do with this filing? And he smiled, and then he put the piece of paper in his file cabinet, and it never saw the light of day.
0: As a senior analyst for the commission, Lisa worked on resource planning and distributed generation. It didn't make sense to her that the construction budgets for the distribution systems were practically useless. And the lack of transparency in planning grid improvements meant it would be hard to integrate cleaner distributed energy resources. Yet Lisa knew DERS were going to dramatically impact utility operations. So she wrote a white paper to the commission outlining her concerns.
1: I said that the commission should investigate how to include distributed generation in utility planning and acquisition sort of generally to meet you know all of the needs the utility has and i specifically talked about providing transparency around all of these electricity system needs.
0: It turned out Lisa was right about the planning for DIRS. That same year, 2005, President George Bush signed the Energy Policy Act into law. It provided homeowners an investment tax credit for rooftop solar systems. And that tax credit triggered a steady rise in solar installations over the next decade. But it took nearly 15 years for the Oregon Public Utility Commission to require utilities to file distribution planning budgets that are open to the public and other stakeholders.
1: You know, they did finally set really good requirements for distribution planning at the very end of 2020. And it even includes requirements related to community engagement, which what we would think today is is really a best practice. So in the end, it you know, it worked out well, but it did take a while to get those practices in place.
0: This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, they don't innovate fast enough, but the industry is full of people trying to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer-centric. This week, I'm talking with Lisa Schwartz, a senior energy policy researcher and strategic advisor at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. She spent her career studying utility distribution systems. Now she works with state commissions to make grid planning more transparent and forward-looking.
1: In my view, having really meaningful stakeholder engagement can improve outcomes because you can get good input and a review from stakeholders, and sometimes utilities uh, move the needle in response. And then finally, stakeholder engagement also can help identify solutions that utility customers and third-party service providers can bring to the table, and they can participate in providing grid services, and that also can mean that they bring their capital with them so ratepayers don't have to pay for all of these solutions. So I I just think that stakeholder engagement is very important.
0: Transparent planning can help power providers connect more rooftop solar, EVs, batteries, and clean technologies to the grid. So I talked with Lisa about some of the states that require distribution plan filings and how the legislation has impacted utilities. But first, we talked about her time working for the Oregon Public Utility Commission. I'm Danny
1: Lewis. And I'm Alex Osola. On the Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast, we explore the projects reimagining the world of tomorrow. Like using sound to rejuvenate coral reefs. Moving microchips beyond silicon. Silicon is no longer energy efficient. And how animals are helping treat human diseases.
0: The Future of Everything is happening right now.
1: Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You got your degree in environmental studies and then the master's in land resources. How did you end up working in energy from there?
1: For some reason, I've always been interested in it. You know, back in the day, you know, small is beautiful. I was really attracted to distributed resources. I I just really liked the idea that you could be somewhat self-reliant. And you could contribute as a person, uh, as a homeowner, as a business person, as an institution. You could actually contribute to the energy system, and you just didn't have to just take, you know, take the electricity from the central service. So I, I, really, I really did appreciate that perspective, and I, I, when I first saw it, I knew that that was going to be a big part of our future.
0: And so a good chunk of your career, about 15 years, I believe, was spent in Oregon. You held positions at the Oregon Department of Energy and the Oregon Public Utilities Commission. When did your focus turn to the distribution grid and system planning?
1: Oh, it really was around that time I saw that, you know, that sheet of paper with all those numbers on it. I had no idea how much money was spent. On the distribution system. And that number has really increased over time. If you look at the Edison Electric Institute numbers, you can see that, that, that chart with the, the bars just increasing over time. So, you know, that to me was really an eye-opener. I, I had been focused on, you know, the bulk power system particularly, you know, generation and then the demand-side resources that can help meet energy and capacity needs for the bulk power system. And uh, later in transmission, and I just never had focused on the distribution system. That was always the reliability and resilience, guys. You know, we just really never saw it until it came to a rate case. And then, you know, it was never the focus.
0: Are there other areas of the utility and the grid that were interesting at that time or that you considered to sporn?
1: Well, I've always been interested in in rate making generally, so that includes everything from rate design, and I'm very interested in time varying pricing because I think that is a really big part of the solution for a least cost future that you know helps with the transition to clean energy resources so So that's an area I've been very interested in, and I, you know I'm, I'm very interested in in resource procurement and and the planning for that. Trying to get to those sort of the best combination of least cost and risk, so that we can keep rates reasonable and have a, a cleaner energy future, which is just so important for people's health.
0: Is there a secret sauce to getting more time varying rates into customers' hands, for lack of a better term, and and have them be successful on them?
1: Well, that's a tough question, and that's really the question, right? you know how how can this work for utility customers in a way that is helpful and and not daunting so uh, you know i'd say a few things one we've just done so many pilots and we certainly can look to those pilots for some of those answers at berkeley lab we have focused in part on vulnerable populations and and that's really i think the most important place to look because uh, we want to be be really careful with people that, you know, have low incomes, people that might have medical conditions. You know, you can't have the electricity cut off. Um, And and we've looked at that. And and so I I think it's important to do research there. Uh, One of the things I like is shadow billing. So in other words, you know, you get a bill that shows you what you would have paid if you were on a particular time-varying rate, but you're not charged that rate yet. So you can have, say, a full year to see... And play with, you know, your your consumption if you're willing to do that. I think the bottom line, though, is most people just don't have an interest uh, or an appetite for for actually playing with their usage. And I think, you know, bottom line is we need automation. We need, you know, set it and forget it technologies from thermostats to, you know, all kinds of other uh, monitoring and controls, so that you know, with some preset conditions that the customer makes. you know, the, the technology is doing the work for them. And so
0: now you're at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You've been there for the past nine years. You started as the energy efficiency team lead. What was your team working on?
1: Well, one of our big projects that we still have going is, you know, what does it cost to save a kilowatt hour instead of having to produce it at a power plant and, you know, deliver it through long transmission lines and then the distribution system to homes and businesses? And, and so, you know, it's tedious work. We go through the regulatory filings in as many states as we can. I think we got up to 41 states, uh, you know. So uh, it's it's really important because, you know, it's also used for benchmarking. So that if you're in one state, you know, where you think it's going to be really expensive to do it, and, and you know, you can look at other states and you could say, wait, that's not... Quite right. It looks like we can do this maybe for less. What are, you know, what's the what are the secrets in other states? Or are we just doing this analysis wrong? So so that's one one important area. And that then we looked at not just what's the cost of saving a kilowatt hour, you know, the energy, but then we realized, well, the peak demand is so important. And so then we focused on what is it, what does it cost to save a kilowatt? And you know, and then you can look at, you know, compare that to other ways to provide capacity, but people forget that energy efficiency can provide you know, viable capacity options at less cost. So that's, that's one of the areas. We also have a big body of work on financing. And in particular, how do you finance in low- and middle-income co- households the energy efficiency measures? So there are programs out there where you can say, you know, the savings has to have to exceed your loan payments every month, the energy savings, because that's the only way that a lot of folks can afford it. The percent of low-income households that that own their homes is, you know, is fairly significant. And so, you know, you don't want them to lose their homes, right, In in making them more energy efficient and making them more comfortable. So it's very important to design any financing programs carefully so that the energy savings exceed their loan payments, and in no cases would they lose their house over it.
0: In terms of the um, what a kilowatt hour what does it cost to save a kilowatt hour or a kilowatt these, these are pretty meaty questions that your team is answering what what's the process or the tools you go about to be able to to calculate that It's not simple math
1: no that's right and and actually I, I should be clear we actually uh, co- collect and standardize the information that the utilities are filing. So we are not doing independent analysis of that work. They have their requirements for how they're supposed to calculate that, and so we are reporting for you know uh, many jurisdictions in the country what the costs are, what the file costs are pursuant to the requirements that the regulated utilities have in that state. We've also worked with um, the American Public Power Association to run the numbers for their members. So their members uh, provided us information, the municipal utilities throughout the country. So we have a similar report. And and interestingly, the numbers really line up uh, on what it costs to save uh, a kilowatt hour. And we've also done this work for natural gas I also wanted to just point out another body of work that we've gotten into more recently on energy efficiency is the time-sensitive value of it because especially with all of the high penetrations we're getting of wind and solar in certain areas of the country, it's really changed when do we need energy efficiency. And so it's important for folks to understand the different end uses and what their load profiles are And the the energy saving shapes for our energy efficiency programs of all kinds and how they can mesh up with our needs now that we have a lot of variable renewable energy efficiency. So we have quite a body of work on that, including a time-sensitive value calculator that jurisdictions and stakeholders can use to estimate the savings for energy efficiency from a variety of different end-use measures in their jurisdiction.
0: Hey, it's Brad with a podcast recommendation. If you're curious how big businesses are encouraging renewable energy while confronting climate change, then you really should be listening to the Climate Rising podcast from our friends at the Harvard Business School. Climate Rising is a great show that gives you a behind-the-scenes view into how some of the world's best and brightest business leaders are doing and what more they should be doing to combat climate change. Hosted by Harvard Business School professor Mike Toffel, Climate Rising dives into the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents to innovators and businesses, as well as the technology that's helping them along the way. If you're new to Climate Rising, then I check out their episode with BGC. That is Boston Consulting Group. Going green may sound easy, but for the companies that operate globally or have thousands of suppliers, it can take a lot of planning. You'll learn how BCG is using artificial intelligence to help their clients accurately measure and reduce their carbon footprint. So don't miss it. You can listen to Climate Rising on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So for those utilities out there that aren't filing distribution system plans today, why is it so important that they do this? What how, how would you counsel them um to get them to to change their ways and start to file these distribution system plans on a regular basis?
1: These distribution system plan filings are the result of either state legislation or utility regulations by, by the Public Utility Commission. So what we do see though on the utility's own motion. Our grid modernization filings, especially in the south, Southeast, we've seen quite a few utilities file their grid modernization plans because these are really expensive investments and they want some kind of uh, blessing at best, but you know uh, at least some kind of feedback from the commission before they make these investments.
0: So for those commissions that do require utilities to file, how does that impact the utility? What are the pros and cons of those kinds of mandates?
1: I mean, you know, it does take um, personnel. You know, most of this analysis is done already in-house, but it might be different units throughout the utility and not sort of in a cohesive manner. And so one of the things that we've uh, found happening, which is a really good outcome of distribution planning requirements for filing, is that the utilities are are somewhat reorganizing in-house so that their different units are talking to each other which is good. Um, and, and the different programs that they have for distributed energy resources are taken into account, for example. So so that's been a really good thing, I think, internally for the utilities. So, for example, some of the new analyses that are required, hosting capacity analysis, I think Excel Energy responded in 2021 that for Minnesota, their costs were, I think it was something like 285000 uh, to to purchase the, the, you know, model to, you know, the hardware costs and the personnel costs. And, you know, I think that's just the startup cost. I think in the future, it's just part and parcel of, of the work they do and, and the cost would not be high in subsequent years. So, you know, there are costs for doing some of these new analyses, but most of these analyses are already being done. And it's just a matter of pulling it together throughout. I think, you know, another plus side is, for the utility is you know they they can have the opportunity in some states to get some kind of acceptance or approval of the plan in in some states there's legislation that allows the utilities the regulated utilities to request uh, expedited cost recovery for some of their grid modernization investments uh states like Indiana and Illinois and in Minnesota are just some of the examples.
0: How are you and your team at the lab involved in distribution planning efforts across the country? And specifically, what role do you play?
1: Well, we provide technical assistance and training for all kinds of state decision makers, the utility regulators, the state energy offices, the utility consumer advocates that are engaged in all of these proceedings to look out for the, typically the residential customer interests, governor's energy advisors, and and so we provide trainings both in a regional location, but also online. We do provide direct technical assistance, typically to state public utility commissions that are trying to promulgate these new requirements, and they need assistance to do that.
0: Do you ever expect that every state will require utilities to file distribution plans?
1: No, I mean, there's some states that just are very hands-off Um in terms of regulation at all. Uh, you know, some states don't even require reporting for reliability or resilience, which I think will increasingly be needed. So, you know, there are d- definitely different flavors of states in terms of their approach to regulation. A lot of it's sort of regulation light. And, you know, the real hammer comes in the Ray case. But, you know, I think increasingly some of these investments, you know, are expensive. And they need stakeholder engagement and they need additional regulatory review outside of a rate case before the utility makes such investments. And to consider the long-term roadmap for grid modernization and for using and integrating distributed energy resources to try to help bring down costs and give customers more control over their energy bills.
0: So even for those states that have hands-off regulatory commissions, I mean, because of grid modernization, because of DCAR, because of customer bills, as you talked about, I mean, do you see down the line where maybe their overall philosophy will change, the less so requiring distribution plans be filed, but more so their change to the regulatory approach or the regulatory philosophy? Is that going to evolve because of some of the the really kind of big, hairy, audacious goals we're trying to achieve around DCAR, but will they still take a hands-off approach?
1: well regulatory you know approaches are always evolving right and so you know i think that that always that always happens i think they will be opining and making decisions about the same things that everyone else is making decisions on it's just you know when and how they they consider and review these and how much input they have in advance i think that's really the difference
0: what is your superpower that you bring to the energy industry?
1: I'm really passionate about helping state regulators make good decisions that meet their own state's objectives.
0: Lisa, thank you very much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it.
1: Good. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, uh, having me.
0: With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with PostGrid Media. Delivering on the clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify the journey. GridX is the enterprise-rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, and Camille Stennis, all from PostScript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Markwand, and Bailey is our story editor. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If you like the show, and we really hope you do, please help us spread the word. You can rate or review us at Apple and Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks for listening. I'm Brad
1: Langley.